Good morning. It's good to see everyone today. Excited to be here and talk about this. We have a lot uh, of our folks that are out of town. Some who are visiting here, though, uh, uh, make up for that. And we appreciate, uh, appreciate your presence. Some of you probably are wondering why my wife and I were not sitting together. And uh, just, just, just so you know, as many things in marriage, I'm wondering too. You know, I have no <laughs> <laughs> uh, I tell you. <laughs> Can't live with them? That's enough. That's right. <laughs> no, it's great. <laughs> Uh, now, see, I'll never be able to preach. I'm laughing, cracking up too much. <laughs> okay. So here's this, uh, this great letter to Thyatira. And I've just entitled this when tolerance is just intolerable. And that's exactly what we see in this particular text. We live in, a, we live in a, an era where everybody screams tolerance. And indeed, there are a lot of passages in the Bible, like I would say Romans 14, urges Christians to be tolerant toward one another in matters that do not have to do with sinfulness. But God is intolerant of those things that are sinful and sinfulness that would especially be among us. And so that that's, is the essence of what uh, uh, Jesus is writing here to this church here in, uh, in, in Thyatira. Very, very unique and interesting letter. So the letter uh, introduces us then to a city that we know almost nothing about uh, as far as biblical records are concerned. We do have some ideas about this city with, with some of the secular writings and some of the history of the city. But, uh, but for the, as far as the Bible is concerned, the name Thyatira is only used twice in the Bible. And in fact, in both cases, it has to do with a, with a woman. So the first time we read about Thyatira would be in the book of Acts in chapter 16 in Philippi when we meet uh, Lydia, who is a uh, seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. And that's quite appropriate because the city of Thyatira was known for its, its many different ways of making money in, in various guilds that they had, and they produced a lot of, of merchandise. And so here in Philippi is the first person to be converted in Philippi was this woman, Lydia, uh, who is then the, the one who then is the shining example, we would say, of, of the city of Thyatira. However, this particular letter highlights a woman who is the opposite of Lydia. She is far from Lydia. In fact, she is named, given a symbolic name, after the worst woman in the Bible. I don't think you could find a worse woman in all of the Bible, that, as Jesus calls her, that woman Jezebel. <laughs> and uh, wow, you, know, you, you, I, you, you don't have to think twice about it, do you? Uh, if you? If you are about to have a child or when you were getting ready to have a child and you looked up in the names that people give to children and tried to pick one, I dare say probably Jezebel was not in the midst of those names, and we would not want to name our child that way. So a little background to the city. Thyatira is actually quite different 
from the cities that we've studied before, like Smyrna and Pergamum, where you had uh, shrines and various temples that were built to emperor worship, and that there was an emphasis on the emperor. Thyatira is different from that, simply from, from the standpoint that Thyatira more, as I just mentioned, was a city that had to do with labor and work and work guilds, and we would call them unions today, and, and all of that. And there was great prosperity then in their businesses. But, of course, in the Roman Empire, when you had a particular business, you had a union and you had a god that you worshipped to give honor to that god because he, that god, to, in their minds, provided you with your prosperity. And obviously then, as we have talked about before, that we see in most of the cities of Asia and, and throughout the Roman Empire often, is where this emphasis then is given on the gods that are providing the prosperity. That's what it's all about. Rome and all of its units are in love with prosperity. What a terrible nation. Man, I can't believe a nation would be that way. You, you don't know of a nation like that, do you? <laughs> that's it. That's it, man. That, that's, the, that's the thing. And if you believe that the United States of America gives you that prosperity and you have to honor and take care of it and worship it. Well, that's a little bit like what's going on here. And I'm not suggesting because we're patriotic we're worshiping the United States. But on the other hand, we can compromise in a sense that was apparently here going on in this church at Thyatira. So quite interesting to see that. Now, there's another thing here that's interesting, and as opposed to the previous churches, is we don't have any evidence here of any persecution that is going on. And that may well very be because of the Jezebel sect in Thyatira, in the church at Thyatira. When we look at what she's doing, she is encouraging sacrificing uh, meat sacrificed to idols. She's encouraging sexual immorality. Those are the things that you read about in the New Testament, and those are the things that we know historically were going on in the feast and the festivals that would be done to honor the gods of Rome. Uh, that's exactly what you read about in the Acts, Acts 15, when uh, uh, the argument about do Gentiles need to be circumcised, and they came to the conclusion, absolutely not, they do not. But we do need to write them to abstain from meat sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality. Huh. Why would you highlight that, James? Why would you say that's what we need to warn all these Gentiles about? Because that was pervasive. That was going on all through the empire. In the, in the letter to, to, first Corinthian, to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians, what do you read about in chapter 6? You've got people all in the church that are practicing sexual immorality. And Paul has to spend half a chapter talking about how bad that is, and you can't do that, etc., etc. Why were they doing that? Because that was part of the culture of the city. Apparently Corinth was so eclectic that they didn't have any persecution over not participating in that, and Paul never mentions any of their persecution. 
But on the other hand, that was not the case in many other cities, and especially Asia Minor, where the emphasis, this was an emphasis that was, that was given there. So let's, let's then go on from that and notice briefly the self-description that Jesus gives of, gives of himself here. As, as we've noted, in each of the letters he does that. He gives a self-description. It's always different. And every time he makes, it's, it's a description that he makes that it's already given in the vision that he gave to John back in chapter 1. This time it's a little unique, just a little little uh, uh, different in that regard when he says to the angel of the church in Thyatira, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, the words of the Son of God. That's the only time in the letter where Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. As a matter of fact, back in chapter 113, when you have the vision, he doesn't call himself the Son of God. He's referred to as the Son of Man. Now, if you're like me, you've often had questions about why does Jesus so often when he's on the earth refer to himself as the Son of Man? Well, that's because of the reference back to the book of Daniel and how Daniel also uses those phrases. He called, Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man in Daniel and also the Son of God in Daniel in both chapter 3 and chapter 7. And therefore, when we get to the book of Revelation and he refers to that, Daniel, of course, is a critical uh, apocalyptic book, if you want, uh, that, that parallels the book of Revelation. And so Jesus is coming to fulfill that. Daniel 7, 13 and 14, one, like the Son of Man, came to the Ancient of Days with the clouds. And it was given to him power, glory, honor, and a kingdom. So even in the book of Daniel, he's highlighting the very thing that we're seeing here in the book of Revelation. And Jesus is reminding them, I'm the one who ascended in the clouds, came to the Ancient of Days, and was awarded a kingdom and glory and honor. You'd better listen to what I'm telling you. So this is, this is him then introducing himself in a way that would prepare them for what he's about to say. As we have noted too, Psalm chapter 2 has that same type of, of mention. Then eyes of flame of fire. Uh, you think of the fact that Jesus is penetrating. He penet his eyes penetrate beyond what is, what is even known in their physical works but even in their mind and their thoughts. And so he says, my eyes are like a flame of fire, my feet like burnished bronze, treading down, as we would see a little bit in the book of Malachi, treading down the wicked, treading down and, and turning them into ashes. So he is approaching them like a judge. And when you know these descriptions that he gives and how they match the message, you would understand if you're listening and you're the members of Thyatira and you're hearing your reader read those first words, make you a little uncomfortable. What's coming, what's coming next? He's speaking like a judge. So he begins like all the letters, I know your works. And then he says these great things. I know your love your faith, 
your servants, your service, and your patient endurance. That, if that were said, and I think it could be said about here quite easily, I know your patient endurance, I know your love, I know your faith, I know your service. We'd say, hey, <laughs> what more is there? That, we, we got it. Stop right there. Don't say anything else. We just end it there and let us go home. We're feeling very, very good. And he even goes even further than that when he uses the words patient endurance. It, it, it is the same words that were used back in the book with the, with the, the city of Ephesus. And, and those same words are used throughout the book of Revelation to indicate those who stand strong even in the face of, of persecution and will can still confess Christ. So you're going, boy, we, we really got this. And then the best of all, your latter works are better than your first. That's the opposite of what he said to Ephesus, remember? At Ephesus, uh, everything's good, but... You've left your first love. You're not like you were at first. In this case, your latter works are better than they were in the beginning. We should obviously stop there and each of us look at ourselves and say, how am I doing with that? Because here's something the Lord has asked us to do. Chip brought that up in class this morning. How am I doing with that? We have to abound more. So it's not just, hey, I hit a level pretty good. I'm coasting. I'm doing great. I have my little schedule. He says your latter works are greater than your first. Again, we would get to this point in the letter and say, looking pretty good here, Thyatira. We are, we, we've got to be proud of what you are doing here. And then these words. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Uh, interesting, interesting statement as Jesus begins the negative part of the letter. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Look at it again. She calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So, the first thing I think about is, all those good works they were doing did not make up for their compromise, their toleration of sinfulness in this church. Does that, is there a little bit, if you getting your heart and mind into the church at Thyatira, to see those words, you tolerate that woman Jezebel, don't you just, doesn't that just kind of fire you up a little bit? How in the world could you be a church that has all of these great qualities and you are ignoring something that is the elephant in the room? You're ignoring a woman as seducing members to participate in sexual immorality. Are you kidding me? How does that go on? Well, let me show you how that goes on. She's beautiful. She's amazing. She 
has a personality that just draws people to herself. She's always confident, convincing in everything that she does. It's just hard not to like her. She's a great leader. She has led so many good things. She's helped people in need when they were starving and couldn't buy anything. She showed them that, hey, you know, all you got to do is just go down and eat some of that in the feast and something, whatever. They don't know any different. You know full well in your head Jesus is your Lord. Come on. Why? Look at the book of Esther. Look at what she did. Look at what Mordecai did. Why, come on. You could be like them. She could make a really powerful argument. Besides that, idolatrous feast, we all have knowledge. We know we're not worshiping that idol. It's not touching our spirit. It's just something fleshly. Now, who's going to kick her out of the church? One of the things that all churches love and all Christians love is peace and unity. I would like you to imagine what it's going to be like to stand up to that woman, Jezebel. Uh, nobody in the church likes her, right? So it's going to be really easy. She hasn't helped anybody, has she? So it's going to be really, really easy. She doesn't have this great personality. She actually has these horns on her head. She looks a lot like just the devil. And it won't disturb anything. There will be no members who will take her side. There will be no group that will say, if you get rid of her, we're all leaving. I mean, after all, this is a loving church. Each man to his own. Each woman to her own. It's none of our business how people handle this persecution. Now you're getting it a little bit better. Why, this kind of thing has happened in churches over and over again. Especially when it is related in some way to a leader or the person is a leader and no one wants to upset the apple cart. You know, what would have made this easier than it is for us? is the fact that a man is standing up in front of this congregation, Thyatira, and reading about Jezebel, and she's sitting there. That would made it a little easier, wouldn't it? You kind of go, well, sorry, honey, but the Lord is about to uh, blow us to pieces if we don't do something about you, and you don't do something about you. That would made it easier. But we don't have Jesus sending a personal letter for a man to read to us about our congregation standing in the midst. That's what makes it hard today. We have to read this letter and know full well 
that Jesus is walking in our midst and he sees it. Now, if you're visiting with us, I don't know of any woman like that in this church, and we have not had any part of tolerating sin, just so you know. I'm not preaching at something that is actually visible. If it were, I would, but that's not what it is. I'm preparing. We always have to deal with a sin that continues within the group. We can't ignore it because Jesus doesn't ignore it. And that is what's critical uh, in this particular text. Notice further, there's Jezebels in churches today. Oh, we don't usually call them that, but the principle is still the same. And that's what we need to recognize. Jezebel is really alive and well. When we consider that it is not uncommon for Christians to view pornography, or to, at the very least, watch movies that we would call soft porn, but mainstream movies that just insert those particular scenes that we all know that are bad. What do we think that is? That is no different than going to the idol's feast that these people were going. They knew full well when they went to those feasts, they were going to see things and things were going to be urged on them that they should not participate in and they would be things that would stir their inner thoughts and inner lusts. And these are things that is a problem in every church I've ever known. If you're involved in this, Please recognize what the Lord said he would do in verses 22 and 23. I will throw her into a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. You know, there's parts of these letters, and we'll see this letter to Sardis as well, where Jesus doesn't threaten to, I will come at the day of judgment. His threat is, I'm going to come now. And I'm going to do something. We may not be able to detect it in some kind of physical way. But those are pretty strong words. And we need to recognize that God does bring about consequences to our sins, especially if we do not repent. There's a number of things that it is important for every one of us to be reminded of. When it comes to sexual immorality and the accompanying meat sacrifice to idols, which is just a way of compromising with the idolatry of the age. Let me hit a few of those things quickly. Remember there's always a danger when we do not maintain a mental And as the corporate world would say, a professional distance from someone we have no right to. That doesn't at all mean that, like I I love Paul, when Paul would say, greet one another with a holy kiss. And I always hear people saying, how come we don't kiss each other? And because that's what they did. Well, that's what they did. That was the way they greeted each other. Most of us feel a little more uncomfortable, especially when I greeted Brian. I don't, I'm not sure I'm ready for that one. But, uh, sorry, Brian. <laughs> uh, so here's, here's the idea. Greet one another with a, what kind of kiss? 
holy kiss. Paul already knew they great, greeted one another with a kiss. Keep it holy. We greet another with a hug, a hand. Keep it holy. That's the idea. Keep your mind holy. Keep your mental state holy concerning those that you have no right to. And that is very important. Never, ever allow yourself improper thoughts with him or her that again is illegal with God. It all begins with thoughts. Just thoughts. Nobody's harmed. Just thoughts. You're harmed. Do not let the thoughts come into your mind. Isn't that what Jesus talked about? He didn't say, I'm just not telling you not to commit adultery. I'm telling you not to think about it. I'm telling you not to desire it. It always begins with thoughts. Never have intimate conversations with the opposite sex. What do you mean by intimate conversations? Oh, my husband, I wish, I wish, I wish he was more like you. You're just, you know, you're so kind and nice. My husband just, I just, I, I wish somebody could help him. He just bothers me so much when he doesn't treat me nice, stuff like that. I just really would like to have a husband like you. That would be nice. You crossed the line. Do not do that. You do not know what's going on in the other person's mind. You do not know how you may have put a little thought in their mind. You don't know what you may have done the other person, even if you weren't already doing it to yourself and you know you were, or you wouldn't have said those things. Those are things that are absolute no-nos. Run when you feel the flutter in your heart. Get away. Oh, well, we're just friends. You know, nothing physical is going on. It doesn't have to be physical for it to be sexual. It starts in the mind. And it starts with getting a little closer and a little closer. And it starts with, we're just really good friends. You have that right with your spouse. You do not have that right with somebody else's spouse or a woman that you do not have a right to. Watch your heart. Run when his or her eyes seem to draw you to them. Proverbs repeatedly talks about her eyes. And certainly men can do the same thing. Be careful. These are the things that lead up to crossing physical lines. And the Lord is warning us about that. There is no sin like sexual sin. Paul said that. There's no sin like sexual sin. Solomon said that. He talked about it in Proverbs 2. He talked about it in Proverbs 5, in Proverbs 6, and in Proverbs 7. Isn't that amazing? Nine discourses and four of the chapters, he talks about sexual sin. And it was going on in the church at Thyatira. 
Oops, I hit the button too much. Here we go. Uh, where was I? Oh, I already did that. Okay, well, well maybe I got to get to the right spot. Sorry about that. What's in my brain was not up here. Notice this. How he refers to sexual immorality as the deep things of Satan, verse 24. He says, to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, uh, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. <laughs> Doesn't that make you wonder? What was Jezebel's enticement? Oh, you have no idea. It'll send you to the moon. It's something you can never, ever experience if you don't look into this. Do you realize that sins, especially sexual sins, are something that God has withheld from us? You say, well, yeah, I understand. But it is also something that you will never, ever experience outside of sin. Can't tell you how many times I've had to sit down with a man or a woman who is losing their spouse because they're in an affair. And I have to say, the biggest challenge you have is he or she is right now experiencing something that you can't duplicate. Proverbs 9, I think it's about verse 27, says stolen bread is sweet. Pleasures of sin are like that, those firework shows that you see. They pop and are gone. But in the beginning, it's a magic carpet ride. And the danger is so great. It's the deep things of Satan. Now consider this. Solomon said in Proverbs 2, None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. None who go into her come back. You're never the same. King David was never the same. Thank God there can still be forgiveness. But it will change you. Paul said it this way, and I think he was really saying in different words what Solomon was saying. Flee sexual immorality. Run like crazy from it. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, that doesn't mean he sinned against some kind of physical part of his body. He sinned against his brain. He's done something to his brain he can never recover from. You cannot go delete. I got that illustration from my son, Rob. We were together one time and we saw a girl not dressed. And she went, he went, delete, 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 delete. <laughs> I went, not working, is it? 
you can't make it go away. And even those who have repented, thank God they did. That image is in their minds for the rest of their lives. I thought about this morning every time David saw Bathsheba that the whole thing came up again. Everything he did came up again. He couldn't get rid of it. And sometimes, most of the time, people who have not committed the sin, yay, don't, cannot understand how deep that person has gotten in their brain to commit that sin. And how long it takes to climb back out. I've, I've known preachers, I've known elders, and I've known many, many good Christians who have fallen to the sin. It has ravaged their hearts. And even after repentance, every day they struggle because it won't go away. And it affects them. It's difficult. It's challenging. The first 10 chapters of 2 Samuel, David could do no wrong. The last 13 chapters was living in an earthly hell. I don't think I've ever warned this church completely about that because, because we don't think about it too much because we think, well, you know, we're all doing good. But it's obviously important to maintain proper lines. And I don't see anybody here not maintaining proper lines. Again, don't get that idea. But it's important to maintain them. And first and foremost, to maintain how we are thinking about this. Paul, Jesus said, I, I gave her time to repent. And if they repent, great. But they're still never the same. God's impatient, is patient, but don't test his patience. Whatever it is, whether it's just looking at it or participating in it, is following the path of Jezebel. And then, concluding, Jesus says, now to the rest of you. Fortunately, there were some in this church that weren't participating in this. They apparently were allowing it. And he says, to the rest, nothing. I just add this, nothing more to give upon you. Just hold fast until I come, and the one who conquers and keeps my words until the end. Notice those two phrases that he uses in the text in verse 24 and then in verse 25, using that word until, until I come, 25 and 26, until I come and until the end. Critical, critical, critical. Make it to the end. You ever notice the good kings of Judah? And how many times? Right at the last part of their life, they fouled up. Always scared me to death. Still scares me to death. Watch your heart. Till the end. Till the end is the critical key. 
He says, I'll give you authority over the nations and you will rule them with a rod of iron. Those are the same words God said to Jesus in Psalm 2. And that is proof positive He is going to lift us up and set Him on His throne. And there is a sense in which the nations then will be subservient. He says, you'll win. You'll have the victory. And then He says, I'll give you the morning star. Morning star just inaugurates that new day. Just like you camp out and you wake up early and you see the morning star just before the sun rises. It inaugurates a new day. It's a reference to Numbers 14. But it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. This is what he says I'll give. So when we've seen the letters so far and we see the letters throughout, what we notice is there's always two choices and two extreme consequences to those choices. Faithful till death, you get the crown of life. The crown of righteousness. Compromise, you'd be crushed with the rod of iron. There's not a third choice. Faithful till death. These letters impact me. I hope they do you. Jesus walking in the midst of the churches. What letter is in his mind this morning? about the Woodland Hills Church? What are the things that are in his mind this morning as he walks in our midst? We always have to have that self-examination and care so that we please our Lord and Savior because he is worthy. He is worthy. We're going to sing a song right now if there's any way we can help anyone here. Please let that be known while together we stand and while we sing.